going after a while. I'm not sure exactly how long you're going to be around, but if you have an opportunity to come back and see us, please just pop in whenever you, you feel like it. We would love to have that. Uh, we are in Romans. Uh, we have been working our way uh, through chapter 1 over the last, last three or four weeks. Today we are going to get into chapter 2. Uh, before we do that, just a little recap of what we've studied. Obviously, this is a, an epistle of the Apostle Paul. It's written to people that he has, uh, he's not been to Rome yet. We know that Paul will eventually get to Rome late in his life, and his ministry there will blossom, even though he will be imprisoned a good bit of the time, and eventually he will be ex- executed. But but he will have what his heart's desiring is expresses here in this first chapter, and that is that he would have some fruit amongst the Roman church. He will have that later on uh, in life. Uh, but one of the things that he notes is how, how people know about the great faith of the Roman church. And we've speculated on that to some degree. We don't know for certain exactly what promoted that so much. Why is it that the Roman Christians' faith, the greatness of that faith, has become so well-known amongst the rest of the church. But I would imagine it had to do with persecution, that they were being severely persecuted in the midst of the persecution. Their faith was shining forth in brilliance into the world around them. And, and they were an encouragement to other believers uh, during that time. And we know that there was a lot of persecution going on and Many other places in Asia Minors, we studied in, in the book of Revelation that those seven churches severely persecuted. But they're standing strong in the faith, and they have been an encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And he expresses to them that uh, he's made plans to come to them at uh, different times, but it's never quite worked out yet. We know that eventually that it will, and really probably not under the circumstances at all that Paul anticipated And we've talked about the fact that Romans could very well be the greatest theological thesis or treatise that was ever written. It's all about theology. It's all about having a right theology. He understands that the Romans have very great faith, but at the same time, he must have had some understanding that they were lacking somewhat in their understanding of all the different aspects of the Christian life and the Christian walk and how all of those things kind of fit together. And so he writes this epistle to the Romans. Again, a very great theological treatise. It's all about theology. In chapter 1, he also has uh, spoken. He's in, made an introduction of the gospel to some degree. And the whole book is about the gospel. It's, how, uh, it's the unfolding of all the intricate and intimate details of everything that the gospel encompasses. And we're going to continue to get on with that in the days to come. But he starts out speaking in regard to this gospel, making the primary point, I think, of his whole epistle, and this is in verse 17, and that is that by the righteousness or by righteousness man shall live by his faith, or 
the righteous man shall live by his faith, that it's all about faith. And what Paul is describing in the rest of this epistle is what the faith is supposed to be focused on. It's faith in what? Faith in who, more specifically? And he talks uh, toward the middle of this, the first chapter about this thing that we call natural revelation. We've talked about this a lot of detail over the last couple of weeks, that, that how through nature around us, through creation around us, that all of us should come to the conclusion that there is a God. It's not sufficient to bring anybody to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, it is sufficient to render every man without excuse. No one will be able to say in the end, I didn't know that God exists because creation screams of the existence of God. It's everywhere you look, it demands that there be a creator for this world and this universe and for us to be here as we are. These things just could not have happened through some happenstance. So this natural revelation is sufficient to render every person on the face of the planet without any excuse. No one will be able to say, stand before God and say, I didn't know that you were. It's not, however, sufficient to bring anyone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is where we, what we call special revelation. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but I have never explained it to you. Where this concept, this theological concept of special revelation comes into the picture. And it's special because it's a special message and it is direct, directed at a special group of people. Natural revelation is available to everyone. Special revelation, on the other hand, is not. It's a special message addressed to special people. God has revealed himself in many ways, as we read in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, in many ways he spoke to the fathers. What were some of the ways that God spoke to the fathers in the past? Well, uh, sometimes it was through visions. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, that the, the Abraham had this vision of God, of the smoking fire pot and the torch passing between the pieces and the establishment of God's covenant, covenantal promises made uh, by God to Abraham that he would become great and that his name would be great, and that his people would inherit the land that he has promised them, which we understand is something that goes way beyond what we would call the, the promised land. It's the, it's the new heaven and the new earth that we were studying all the way back in Revelation not so many weeks ago. We know that Daniel had visions. Uh, we know that sometimes God revealed himself to people in dreams. Those were special ways in which God spoke to the fathers in past ages. But in these last days, he has spoken to us primarily and principally in the greatest form of revelation that has ever taken place. And that is in his son, Jesus Christ. We have special revelation available to us today. The scriptures, the Bible. The Bible is key 
for our understanding of absolutely everything. Everything that has to do with God, everything that has to do with us, everything that has to do with our relationship with him. The Bible. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, and and sometimes I think people believe that reading through the Bible in my lifetime would be a great accomplishment, but it's going to take my whole lifetime to do it. But the fact of the matter is this, is if we spend as much time reading the Bible as we do on the average watching TV every week, we could read through the whole Bible in just a matter of weeks, easily. I want to encourage you, uh, continue and encourage all of you to do that, to be in a systematic process where you're reading through Scripture. And when you finish reading through the Bible, that you start reading it all over again and just do it, do it, do it. It should be one of your lifetime goals. Sadly, there are a lot of people, a lot of church people that never do. There are a lot of church people that will never read through the Scriptures in their one time in their whole lifetime. Not once. People see it sometimes as this insurmountable thing. They look at it, and they look at the volume of it, and they're thinking, I never can, would be able to read that. I can't understand it, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You need to be doing this. Bible studies are good when you get together with other people and, 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 you, and you discuss particular passages and things like that, but there is nothing, nothing that can take the place of you reading through Scripture on a regular basis on your own. And it's not something that anyone else can do for you. You have to do it for yourself. If you want to grow as a believer, it's a necessity. I mean, if you're fine where you're at. But if you want to grow as a believer, if you want to grow as a Christian, you have to be in the Word of God. It's not going to happen apart from that. This book of Romans is here in the Bible because God put it here. This is God speaking to us. Paul is the author, but God is the original author. He's the human author. Paul is. But it's God speaking through him. Giving us today this very great gift. It's a gift from God to have this book of Romans. And we need to take as much advantage of that great gift as we possibly can. So the righteous shall live by faith. But then Paul gets into the fact that the wrath of God has come has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness because man, rather than seeking after that God that is revealed to him in nature, man as a whole chose otherwise. And so God didn't let go of the reins, but he loosened the reins whereby he holds back sin. And their thoughts or their minds were depraved and they began to do things like idol worship. And we talked about this a lot in uh, last week probably. And that is that, that ultimately what it comes down to this is we're all idol worshipers. And the idol we worship more than anything else is us. We ourselves. And 
And last week we talked about just how far we've fallen. And we noted that we're all in this boat. That Paul identifies particular sins that are grievous to the heart of God. The one that he focuses on more than anything else was the sin of homosexuality. But at the same time we talked about the fact that it in fact is a sin. But at the same time it is not a sin that is greater than all other sins. And that we're all guilty as sinners and that we're all in the same boat together. Paul just using a particular sin to elaborate on it. He could have chosen envy, envy or... Or, or a number of different sins, but he, he, he picked this particular one, and I would imagine because it was probably very pervasive in the culture that the Romans were exposed to. But in verse 29, he, sees, he talks about a variety of sins, all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. Has anyone in, in this room ever been felt greedy for anything? Have you ever felt uh, envy for anything? Ever been envious of a person? Have you ever slandered another person? Have you ever been a gossip? So the truth is this, is we're all in this boat. It's not just about a certain group of people who are worse sinners than everyone else. It's everybody. And then we get to chapter 2. Therefore you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by uh, perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and mortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. And we will stop there. Something I always noticed when I first started reading this book of Romans is how there's a shift that Paul makes here. If you'll notice back in chapter 1, the pronoun that you see over and over again is they or them. You know, when we hear they or them, we think he's talking about other people. He's not talking about me because we're not included in them. Notice here in chapter 2, it is no longer them or they, it's you. No longer they or them, it's you. Has his audience changed? Is chapter 2 going to a group of people that are other than the ones that he wrote to in chapter 1? And the answer is no.
So what he's saying to you and me is this. Well, let me just say, this is a, this is a particular part of Romans that people really have kind of struggled with because there's some things that are said here that really are hard, difficult for us to put in the context of all of the blessings that Christians will be afforded. For instance, in chapter 5, it doesn't sound like this could be something that God that could possibly be writing to Christians. That because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The, the second coming of Christ. He's saying that you're storing up wrath. So how could that possibly apply to believers? Because in another place, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this. He says, Jesus will deliver us from the wrath. So you can understand why Bible scholars kind of stumble over this. How can this be? How how can that be taken and really actually applied to believers? So you'll find that some of the Bible scholars have come to different understandings, maybe, of who the who is. Calvin refers to this as a subgroup of the, of, the, of, of the whole group. Obviously, who, did, who, did, who is Paul writing to? Who is the you? Obviously, the most clear answer is the people in the church in Rome. All of them. Not just a subgroup. Calvin kind of answered this, and I don't think he really answered it in what he said, and that is that he, he sees this as, as, as a group of hypocrites, people who are in the church that are hypocritical. John Murray concludes, because Paul gets into the place of the Jews in, in, in this big picture of the gospel, just a, in, in just a few more verses, and John Murray concludes that, uh, that he's talking about, he's talking to you as the Jews. But just remember this. This is the same audience that Paul was talking to in chapter 1. This audience hasn't changed. What I would say to you is the you is... Every person in that Roman church. Because this is part of Scripture that the you is you, the you is me. Let me just say this, Christians that have so many things available to them. We have the word of God available to us. We have the fellowship of the church available to us. We have every advantage compared to so many people in the world that don't. There will be people that die today that have never, ever, one time in their life heard God's word, seen it, written, read it, etc., etc., etc. God will judge those people because of natural revelation. 
Because even though they knew God existed, they did not seek out the God that exists. But they do have the excuse. Because they, don't have, they didn't have the word of God. They never heard it, and they never saw it, and they never read it. What I'm telling you is very often we want to make those people out to be the ones that don't have an excuse. But what I would say to you is they're the people who have the greatest excuse of all. If anybody has an excuse, they do. The least excusable of people in the world ought to be those who have the greatest advantages. And don't take advantage of them. Where would that leave you and me? Seriously, what I'm saying this morning is of all people, we are the least excusable. Because we have all kinds of advantages that other people don't. We're used to being able to give excuses very often and work our, our way out of difficult times. You, you know this, when you were a kid and you got in trouble and whatever, you could always come up with excuses for mom and dad that sometimes worked and sometimes they didn't work. We use the excuses very often as adults when we don't do some of the things that we're supposed to do as, as fathers and mothers and, you know, uh, employees or employers and... Uh, teachers and students and just all kinds of things. We, we can always come up with excuses for ourselves. So it's very easy for us to excuse away things like we're not really dealing with a sin in our own life. Things like I don't have the time to read the word of God because I'm so busy doing other things. I mean to get my point. Reality is this. Is, of all people, we have the greatest advantage of everybody and it's sad as all get out that very often we don't take advantage of it. We can come up with all kinds of excuses of why I don't read the Bible. Now, let me tell you, if you're not reading the Bible, you're excusing yourself from doing it. You've come up with reasons why you don't really need to do it, why you don't have to do it. To those who are given much, much is expected. What I would say to you is this, is that you here is the sin within us. There's a distinction we need to make as far as we go. And that is this, and that is even though we have been called by God and, we've, and, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, we still have a sinful nature that indwells us as well. And that what Paul is doing here is calling on that sinful nature, calling out that sinful nature. 
And how often do we judge other people? Don was at Presbytery the other day and really enjoyed being there. I love going to Presbytery. I know some people don't like it, but I, I love being there, and I was really delighted. Lloyd was able to, first time Lloyd's been able to go in 20 years. Uh, he used to go every now and then, but uh, so it's not the first time he's been there. It's been 20 years since he's been there, but he went with me. and uh, I know some people would hate it you know, because it is meetings that go on for hour after hour after hour, and sometimes they s- seem to be kicking the same dead horse over and over again and you know, things like that. But, but more often than not, we have discipline cases, judgments to make in regard to people. And the ones that we deal with at the level of presbytery more often than not are pastors. And lo and behold, we had to deal with a discipline case last Tuesday. Pastor was charged with being disrespectful. Didn't want to listen to anybody else's opinion about anything. Domineering, I guess, would be a word. Belligerent in his reaction to things that people brought to him. And so there was a group of people in his congregation that, after trying to, to reason with him and, and, and bring him to repentance, he refused to repent. He refused to acknowledge that he had done anything wrong at all. And so it wound up at Presbytery. And we had to deal with it. It's nothing that anybody enjoys doing. And if somebody does it and enjoys it, then there's something wrong with them. They're sick. It's hard. Because you're making decisions about a man and his family, their livelihood, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're standing in the community and all kinds of things. But in our denomination, when things like this happen, we don't, nobody, I hope no one runs to deal with these kinds of things. I would run away from them every time if I could do it. That we did it, and at the end of the day, that preacher was suspended from preaching for six months. He cannot stand in his pulpit and preach, or any other PCA church, and preach. For six months. The whole reason for it is this. is Even when he was confronted with his sin by presbytery. He was still in refusal to repent of it. To acknowledge that he'd even done anything wrong. But when the commission voted, every one of them voted to suspend him because there was evidence that the, the, the complaints and the gripes that people brought were real. They were true. That he was not dealing with his congregation as a shepherd ought to. He was not living up to God's standard as a shepherd. This is the key issue. It's not what I think, not what you think. It's what God thinks, what God says. One of the qualifications to be a teaching elder is that you be uncontentious. Not quick to temper. Prayerfully, this will be a time of great soul-searching for this particular man. 
that on the end of it, he will be better for it because he will come to repentance. He will acknowledge his wrongdoing. The fact of the matter is, for every single one of us, there's still sin there. There's still sin active. And ultimately, it all has a design, and the design is to distance us away from Jesus. To drive a wedge between us and him. When we were doing that proceeding the other day, I hope, and I'm sure this is true, that every man there was thinking, where have I messed up? What are my besetting sins? This could very easily be me, the sinner. I think very often today, people think of Jesus simply as their ticket to heaven. I think it's a pervasive, I'm not talking about necessarily in our denomination. Hopefully that's not very common in our denomination. It's, I certainly pray and hope it's not common in, the, in Springs Presbyterian Church. That people look upon Jesus as nothing really more than their ticket to heaven. In other words, this, 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 this idea they made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, therefore they're going to heaven. It doesn't really matter what they do or what they don't do. That's a guaranteed thing. All you've got to read Scripture to tell you that. But they forget about all the other things that Scripture talks about. And that is that, that, that when you really have a relationship with Christ, your life is different. You don't love sin. You run from sin. You don't ignore sin and pretend like it's not there. You deal with it. I mean, there is an underlying truth here, and that is this, that everything that Paul says here could be applied to every one of us to a degree. That we're all guilty of the things he's talking about here. Every one of us. I mean, how often do we judge other people when we are as guilty as they are? The truth of the matter is this is very often when we judge other people, there's a good chance that we're even more guilty than they are. People either don't know themselves or they refuse to know the the, the reality of who they really are, how other people see them. If you want to know what you're like, what do other people say about you? I think we probably would all be surprised if we had a real honest sit-down session and talk with each other about how we perceive you to be <laughs> compared to how you perceive yourself to be. You guys have seen this before. People, we just don't see ourselves as other people do. Because a lot of reasons. One of those is we can always excuse bad behavior on our own part. Because we know all the circumstances. And we think that there are these, these things, the excuses that we have that get us, free us from the burden of it. I 
I just want to remind us this morning that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Believer, unbeliever, everybody. Everyone that has ever been created. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. At the same time, you need to, I want to assure you of something. That is, if your faith truly is in Jesus, then he will save you from the wrath to come. He will. But we're going to give account, believers are going to give an account to Christ himself for what we've done with the good life that he's given us. For, with all the opportunity that he has given us. By giving us his word, by, by giving us the spirit and all these other things. How, what, how have we used those things to our advantage? To excel in our understanding and to, to promote our discipleship of other people and reaching out with the gospel to the masses of people that live around us. In other words, have we used our good life for ourselves, for our own benefit, or have we used it for the benefit of the church the benefit of Christ Jesus himself. It's pretty clear from Scripture that that, that we're all going to be rewarded, but at the same time from Scripture, it's pretty clear that we're not going to be equally rewarded. I've had people say to me things like, uh, we get to heaven, I'm just going to be glad I'm there. I can sweep the streets, that'd be a job fine for me, just as long as I'm there, that's all I care about is being there. Which sounds like a good thing, and in some light, that is a good mentality to have, but there's there's another side to that 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 gives you the idea that, that this person is willing to settle for the least. that I'm going to do the least amount in this world that I have to for God, and I will settle with what I get because I know it's going to be good. That's not what Jesus wants for anybody in this room, to settle for little. There's a difference between wrath and displeasure. And sometimes I think we don't give credence to this. And some, some words, just like in English, they have different meanings. The same word can mean different things in different places. The same word that's translated as wrath in places can be translated as displeasure. What I mean by that is this, is, 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 is God displeased with us in any way today? And could we see maybe some of that displeasure displayed at the second coming of Christ? Possibly. But again, the challenge is this. It's what is really is the focus of our life. 
Is it ultimately me? When push comes to shove, am I the center of everything in my life? Or is it him? Is he the focal point of all that we are and all that we do? Verse 6. He'll render to every man according to his deeds. He will be rewarded according to your deeds. Just think about the parable of the talents and the minus. Heaven will not be exactly the same thing for everybody. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. And you'll be glad to be there. But where are you right now? Can you honestly sit here this morning and say that God is the center of everything? Sometimes it's comfortable to be you. Sometimes it's not so comfortable to be the you. But I give you this this morning... And uh, pray for me this week. And I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer for me, that the things that we talked about this morning, I will consider and I will regurgitate. And they will make a difference in my life. And how I go about the things that I go about. And establish my priorities. And I'll pray the same thing for you. Hallelujah. Amen.